I'm Shannon Theobald, and this is Big Food, Big Future, where we teach you how to make a positive impact in the food system to leverage influence for good. Thanks for coming. I am so glad you're here to chat today. China vital to the global future of food? Today, we're back with Abhinav to learn more. We'll zoom in on these two markets in particular and also get a better sense for the Asian food scene as a whole. We're back talking with Abhinav Mera. In case you missed us last time, Abhinav is the VP of ID Capital, a Singapore-based food tech and agritech venture investment firm. He has a packaging background with Mandela's and PwC, but also has an entrepreneurial stint where he realized the importance of food disruption. Today, we're talking about food in Asia. So I wanted to ask Abhinav about the differences between Asian and Western food markets. If if you were a founder in this space, what would you do first um, in terms of integrating these traditional practices into a larger scale initiative? So, you know, it's been done. Um, there are companies who are doing it um, and they are do- no, some of them are doing it at, even at a global level. I just feel like what they've, they've sort of sometimes missed out is a bit more, um, you know, I think uh, a bit, what, what the Western world wants is a bit more, uh, I'd say research and, confirmation around you know what your bottle says so you say your bottle has a b c and d so four different ingredients mixed together you know you know for you know since 2000 bc people have been eating this and you know it's been great for the uh, great for the body great for the health um i think there needs to be a bit more research to define what exactly is happening. It's the same way people are seeing the microbiome today. You know, research is going into figuring out what's happening in the microbiome and people are trying to figure out um, to give 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 a bit more scientific backing to these um, claims. Uh, and I think that's step one, you know. So don't, you know, when you start looking at Ayurveda and, you, you know, there are, you know, four or five massive books on it um, uh, and people want to just, you know, go for uh, disease by disease and illness by illness and, you know, try and target all of them. Uh, I'd rather go ingredient by ingredient and start seeing, um, you know, what what would be uh, what what research can you know we find offline like already existing, uh, and what research needs to be done to sort of prove this and then build a food product around it, uh, rather than using existing um, existing data uh, and sort of trying to piggyback on the existing you know sort sort of claimed health benefits, but. The claims also, are, I'd say, are light. You know, um, I think there's a lot more that can be done towards building uh, singular products uh, rather than you know just taking Ayurveda global, but or TCM global, uh, but rather looking at a more niche, uh, single crop, single plant, uh, single ingredient sort of strategy on that. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah, I definitely agree that you know, at least in the U.S., we've seen a bit of that and it hasn't been 
I guess, taken seriously, um, which, like you said, it has huge potential to. These things have been used for thousands of years. So I would love to see that. Love to see that pop up more. Do you think that it would find more success in Asian Pacific markets initially? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think it's... um it would be an easy pickup for the Asian Pacific market because uh, they're a bit more uh, uh, tuned to uh, tuned to what it is. There's less customer education, if I may say so, uh, to be done around these products. Um, but you know, that being said, you know, if it's um, if it's scientifically backed and it's, uh, I think it's got um, so much more opportunity globally. Uh, but yes, the initial market's got to be Asia Pacific because it's just. It's low-hanging fruit if it's done because um, you skip a couple of steps of trying to explain the consumer what exactly it is because they're a bit more used to uh, having sort of traditional uh, herbology and traditional medicine uh, as a part of their childhood growing up. And I've had it. So, you know, when people, when I meet, you know, uh, you know, my Chinese uh, friends over here, they always tell me, oh, we used to have this growing up. And I kind of relate to it because I had these other things that I've had growing up, which, you know, I, I'm sure like other people would find strange, but it's more about the fact that, we, you know, we've we've come from this sort of um, sort of heritage of having, um, you know, these health supplements, which are so locally uh, ingrained um, that uh, it may or may not be common practice, but the the act itself uh, is fairly um, fairly common. Definitely, and that that almost uh, tradition, the tradition of it, you know, it's passed down from your family. That's mm-hmm. significant too, and that will, of course, play a role in adoption right. of these products. What I'm hearing from Abhinav is that sometimes you have to go back to the past to understand the present and bring yourself forward to the future. So what's characteristic about the Indian food industry in particular? Now, remember, this is where Abhinav got his start, where he realized the importance of food tech. Indian food is growing massively, and it's really something we all need to understand in order to really have a grasp on the global food market. So I want you to hear it straight from the experts. Here's Food Ingredients and Health Ingredients India to tell you some more. The Indian food industry is getting bigger with every bite. With the economy notching up unprecedented figures and the spending power of consumers increasing, along with their willingness to try new products, we've never had it better. Thanks to the economic growth, globalization, urbanization, the relaxation of import policies and the growth of organized retailing, the Indian food industry is expected to grow at a rate of 11% to 64.31 billion US dollars by 2018, while the total food production is likely to double in the next 10 years, with a staggering expansion in the packaged food and food services industry. The Indian consumer is expecting more choice than ever before, increasing the demand for health, weight loss, natural, ready-to-eat and other specialized food products. In this booming scenario, international manufacturers of food and health products, suppliers, exporters and importers have the ideal trade partner in India. And FI and HI India is where it all comes together. At the most comprehensive trade event in the subcontinent for food and health ingredients, processing and packaging, 
The only B2B show of its kind in the region, FI and HI India was launched in 2006 and drives India's processed food sector. Both regional and global food professionals use this platform to learn about the latest industry developments, meet new business prospects and launch new products to gain a competitive advantage in the fastest growing food marketplace in the world. FI and HI is part of the global food ingredients portfolio that has drawn more than 500,000 visitors over the last 25 years, resulting in billions of euros worth of business deals. From workshops and demos to technical seminars and pavilions, and from innovation hubs to product showcases, FI and HI India brings together top manufacturers, decision makers, exhibitors, buyers and sellers of food and health products from all over the world, making it an invaluable trade and business platform with infinite opportunities. Make sure you get your slice of the pie. The global pie chart, so to speak, is growing. And those with an understanding of emerging markets have a clear advantage in getting the biggest slice. That's why Abhinav lessons are so important. Whether as a forum for new products based on tradition or international collaboration hub, India is growing and knowledge of it is not optional. I wanna pause for a sec to tell you about something cool. Now, when I first started, I had absolutely zero idea how to edit a podcast. But luckily, I found Alitu. That's A-L-I-T-U. It's pretty much the copy-paste of podcasting. You upload your clips, click and drag to arrange them how you want or cut them, and then Alitu edits your audio for you so it sounds amazing. If you want to learn more, go over to my website, shannontheobald.com slash capital A-L-I-T-U. And let me know if you have any questions at all. Seriously, I genuinely recommend this and will continue using it. I love it. And I hope to be listening to your podcast sometime super soon too. Okay, back to the show. Now, along with all the buzz we hear about India, we also hear about another key player, China. What's the competitive dynamic here? How do we separate things from international competition and instead transform into international collaboration? After all, that's what this podcast is about. Changing gears a bit, but you gave me a nice transition. <laughs> you have mentioned uh, both China and India mm -hmm. in uh, this traditional herbology mm -hmm. space. Now, obviously you see this as huge potential there. Um, I'm wondering what else you see in uh, India and China in the moment, uh, opportunities, challenges, that kind of thing. I uh, read your article on the two giants on, on Asia and China. And I loved it. Everyone should go check that out, by the way. Um, just, yes, wonderful. Absolutely. And great uh, for myself as someone who's kind of new to the APAC food scene. So all you listeners, you should, you should get involved. But I guess, Abhinav, would you give us a brief uh, overview of 
the current dynamic between uh, Chinese and Indian food markets and then tell us about what you see in their future. Right. No, sure. So, um, you know, I, I had started this post with the sort of the inspiration behind it being the fact that um, a lot of people would use, you know, China and India. And I mean, I've done it throughout this conversation. Uh, we use it in the same breath uh, to say, you know, to sort of define Asia. Firstly, um, it's the market is way more than just them, right? Uh, it's just because of the large populations. And when we speak about the food sector, uh, they become you know, the main consumers of this. Um, so, you know, they, they're easy to sort of, um, you know, claim as the largest two markets in, in Asia, which they are. But there's a, there's a, there's, there's a lot more. Uh, but also this sort of, um, you know, comparison of India and China, and, and, and at time they were comparable. So I start this article, uh, this sort of post that I've written with a November, 20, November 2011 um, magazine cover of the Time magazine which is India versus China. And, you know, you've got the elephant fighting the dragon on that. Um, and, you know, I, I I just, you know, when I was writing this and I was just saying like, yes, there was a time that they were comparable, not so much anymore, you know. Um, China's almost six times the size of uh, India now. Um, you know, when that, when that Time magazine came out, um, Amazon was valued at, you know, 80 odd billion dollars. And I mean, today they're worth, uh, at least 10 times that. Um, and what's happened is, if I, I'm taking Amazon as a proxy, but what's happened is that tech has just exploded, you know, um, and China has really uh, ensured that they hung on to that tech wave. You know, um, though India was sort of the, you know, infotech giant and, you know, a huge back office for the rest of the world, um, and China was seen as sort of a factory floor where like a lot of manufacturing was happening. Either of them could have actually hung on to this wave, but China did it much better. And that's why they are where they are today uh, is because they rode this tech wave um, and, and it's, and it's you know, seeped in right to the agri sector, you know, uh, while India has sort of still been plagued with some systemic problems at the ground level uh, at the farm. Um, you know, smallholders are a, are a, you know, a nuance of both the markets, but the way they, uh, the way they're approached, the way they're sort of uh, trying to, China's trying to, you know, bundle them together and India's trying to do it now. They've got this thing called farmer producer organizations where they're trying to uh, come together, trying to bridge a lot of these smallholders together so that they become easier to access, uh, both from a entrepreneur trying to access these farmers as well as for them to access commodities and inputs uh, for there because they get sort of a better pricing for it. Uh, you know, these would have been the problems, but, you know, China has addressed them, you know, a while back and India is starting to address them. So it's exciting times in India as well. Um, but what I think, um, you know, with it, from the food space, what's really, really, uh, you know, picked up uh, in, in both these markets is, um, you know, people are trying to uh, trying to change the way they eat. You know, uh, when you look at these two markets, you're just talking about a massive middle class population and a massive middle class diet. And middle class diets are are more meat, uh, are more um, just higher calorie uh, consumption. Uh, and, you know, they are, to an extent, uh, you know, they, they're a part of the burden that the world faces when they, when we talk about, you know, this, you know, 9 billion plus population by 2020, we're, oh, uh, 2050, sorry. Um, 
you know they're contributing a large part of these um, uh, new you know uh, uh, calorie takers right um, and i feel like uh, one of the one of the most basic things that you know um, india and china uh, are sort of doing is sticking to the roots uh, trying to ensure that you know their local uh, consumption their local diets uh, are being you know uh, are being moved into the snack form are moved being moved into the uh, sort of consumer product space because if they start you know completely westernizing their diets that you know they it could be um it could be very tough for the local entities and the local companies to build innovations because they're better to better aware and better sort of um uh, in tune to develop stuff for the local diet and the local taste buds um and, and i think that's what that that's great you know i see more and more companies trying to um trying to build indian snacks or chinese snacks because and 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 target those customers they may not have a global play but i i say this with a you know with a almost with a hint of optimism but i feel like that's just for now i think even these indian snacks and these uh, chinese snacks that are being built uh, for the local growing population they have a huge market outside i mean i don't think um seaweed chips uh is far away from reaching a lot more markets than uh, you know than than just the chinese market uh, i mean if you just think about the diaspora i mean the indian and chinese diaspora all across the world um these products need to reach them someday and you know uh, i feel like when you start getting it at the shelves at walmart or um you know at your at your marks and spencers you 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 start at least you know picking it up and hopefully start liking them so i think from a food space that's what you know that's what their first uh, uh sort of low hanging fruit has been to sort of uh, make their local snacks into more uh, consumer friendly marketing driven um purchases um and then i you know i also spoke about you know how you know one of it's a bit anecdotal but you know you see the pork market in china um and it's massive uh you know the consumption is massive the production is massive um and i think one of the more interesting things happened uh in you know in the past uh past year or so was when alibaba uh, sort of realized the pure potential of pork, pork farming you know of pig farming um and in and it's true uh, you know we should never forget that farming uh, whether it's animal or or or, or crops is a very profitable business and uh, the thing is tech can only make the costs lower uh, and quality better uh, and alibaba's use which is you know they you know they're a powerhouse of technology uh, and they've seen this market opportunity and they've built sort of this traceability solution you know based on ai to sort of um, uh, try and you know dabble in this um, in this big farming business and and it's and it's doing really well you know um it's it also sends a huge signal to the market that you know when a company this size company with this sort of uh, capital could be you know investing capital in lots of places one of the things that they looked at was very clearly um pig farming in in china uh, and um, i think that that there wouldn't be too many anecdotes of Uh, you know something like this in india yet um, but you know i see more and more uh, corporations trying to which are not in the agri space to try and look at it and say listen 
you know, we have to remember that, you know, it's a great margin business and it could be, you know, a pretty safe investment for us to start looking into the food sector, looking into the agri sector. Um, and I think uh, there are so many more examples that are happening, you know, from an investment side, definitely. Uh, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, this old, uh, not old is, would be a wrong word, but um, still, you know, it's been around for a while, which is corn, corn with a Q. It's a micro protein. Um, it was based out of the UK originally, I think. And, you know, it it, it, it had multiple owners at, at one point. And, you know, it's gone through private equity fund to private equity fund being owned by them. Today, it lies in the Philippines. Uh, it's owned by a company called Mondenison. And, um, you know, it's just for them, it's like they see this trend of uh, meat alternatives and um, sort of vegan diets. And they feel like, oh, yeah, you know what? Um, if this is it, let's try and let's try and look at something that's been around for a while. Uh, and, and they, they've acquired corn and they've put it into their portfolio and you're going to start seeing them in markets here in, in, in Singapore as well now. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, for them to make such a sort of global move uh, based out of, the, uh, you know, based out of a company based out of Philippines, uh, it, it really sends um, the, a very positive signal about how Asia is also viewing these global trends and trying to um, trying to ensure that you know uh, they're on top of them, you know, and I think that uh, you know the corporations here are, you know, they are just like the West are also very cash rich, and it just comes down to um, more and more of them trying to realize the opportunity the agri and the food space bring. Um, it is tough for some of them to. Uh, because it's such a taste and trend-driven market for them to constantly sort of, um, you know, pivot and reinvigorate themselves and get a new product out. Because it takes it takes a lot. It you need to be you need to keep your eye on the ball. And traditional Asian businesses have always been about the traditional businesses where you know things are stagnant, things are sort of uh, working like clockwork. And you know, um, you know, there is a single commodity or a single market that you're working around. But here, when it's so consumer-driven, uh, it becomes a little bit trickier. So to get, um, you need some of the new guys like Alibaba, guys like Baidu, guys like Tencent to sort of take notice of this uh, and start making the initial steps. Definitely. So what do you think has been the the largest factor or what was the tipping point in mm-hmm. convincing companies like Alibaba of the opportunity in this space you know that's we're starting to see that uh over here in the u.s as well and that's something i'm super interested in uh and hoping to investigate within this podcast so i'd love to learn from what's going on over there too all right so um i think like i said i think everyone's aware that it's a great margin business but what's the tipping point for someone like alibaba to do it and maybe not some you know, not a company sitting out of India initially. Um, it's because the systemic and the access to this market uh, has been simplified, you know, um, whether it's through governmental um, uh, investments or whether it's through, you know, private entrepreneurs trying to build the sector, um, there needs to be a certain level of, um, I'd say, readiness that the, the, the sector has when it's, you know, sort of ripe for, you know, external capital, which is just, you know, capital, which it did, it never intended to sort of attract. Um, and in India, we're still, I think, 
a few years away from that because a few basic problems need to be fixed. Like there is such so, such high uh, post-harvest losses in India because of lack of cold chain. Um, the warehousing is a problem. People are addressing that now. Uh, you know, if you know, while I was studying, uh, even my undergraduate studies, I remember my professors telling me that the biggest opportunity in India is cold storage warehousing, and it still remains. You know, I still believe that it's a huge op- opportunity uh, because um, you know there's so many products, there's so much produce. I believe we grow enough. I feel like it's just less and less reaches the plate because of you know the way things are being transported, and why? Because there are these systemic issues. Uh, you know, in, in certain countries like in India, in Indonesia, in Philippines, it's tougher for um, you know a company of um, Alibaba or its equivalents in these markets to try and target this sector because um, there are so many deep-seated issues that they don't know how to address uh, that it becomes very difficult for them. But when when you look at China, they've you know they've, they've solved some of these issues, so they, they're they're open to getting this sort of capital where you know the, it's a the business itself, which is the pork production, for example, in this case, um, is one part of it, and they need to educate themselves. But they don't need to. There's not a lot of um, you know I'd say uh, hurdles and you know uh, and, and and stumbling blocks uh, when they need to get it to the market and you need to export it. Uh, the other markets in this space in the in this region uh, are still sort of grappling with that, with getting that you know final uh, farm to fork corrected. Um, and you see more and more startups coming in this space, where which are willing to you know take off produce from farmers in bulk and and bring it to uh, bring it to the cities. Um, and I think that's one of the tipping points where you know Alibaba was able to say, and I mean you know, we've never sp- spoken to them about this in particular. But, you know, they were able to say that, yes, you know, this sector has the margin and it has the sophistication level now for us to, you know, to, you know, to dabble and, you know, uh, do a bit of business in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. So. Interesting. I don't know a lot about market development, if I'm being honest with you, but I'm curious, what do you think are the main factors in getting markets like India to a place where uh, they will be, quote unquote, ready for these investments? Um, I think, I mean, there's, there's a, you know, there's this, you know, st- statistic that I've, you know, I've I've always read and sort of, you know, baffled me. Um, you know, between, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, infrastructure growth in China, and you know, if you've not do visit China, and you know, not just the big cities you, which you, you know, hear about in the papers, but just, you know, pick out a random city on the map once you're in Shanghai and try and travel to it, and you'll just see it's just phenomenal. It's just the amount of infrastructure they've built, the roads they've built. Um, uh, you know, between in the early 2000s, you know, in the first five odd years from 2000 to 2005, you saw, you know, infrastructure investments from the government growing, you know, by 50% annually. You know, they're just pouring in money. They're saying we'll build the roads and we'll build the businesses later. Uh, and, you know, that was a great philosophy because um, obviously cities get crowded and you need to, you know, move out. And I think just that much more investment towards infrastructure building in these other markets is very critical, you know. Um, 
I mean, when I started Project Chirag, uh, which was going back to right at the beginning of this conversation, uh, we were doing solar lighting for villages uh, because these 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 villages that we sp- spoke of had zero access to electricity. I'm not talking about insufficient access to electricity where there are power cuts or nothing. I'm talking about zero access. Like there's not even an electricity pole, right? Um, I don't think you, you, you would see too much of that in China. Um, the government has ensured that water, roads, electricity, these are basic um, uh, inputs for for an individual to for his livelihood, and that they, that they're reaching, you know. Uh, and I think that's that's where uh, uh, you know a lot of countries can learn, uh, and a lot of countries can adopt the sort of policies. Um, the difference being, you know, a lot of people would hide behind the fact that oh, you know, it's a large country. Where I mean that they themselves are a large country, and it's tough to like just access it. But when you see somebody the size of China being able to solve this and, you know, at a point in time, starting at the same level as you, um, they, they've done something right, you know? Uh, and I think that a lot of these other markets are um, are trying to build their initial steps towards, uh, you know, getting their, uh, um, uh, you know, getting their infrastructure play right. Uh, I mean, if you just see telecommunications in India has just skyrocketed, you know? Um, there used to be numbers that you know you would compare between China and India, and you'd be like, "Oh, yeah, actually, you know, China has really uh, taken a huge lead when it comes to telecommunication and people using the internet." But in India now, uh, they've made practically you know the usage of uh, you know uh, cell phones free. You know, for the mobile phone, uh, you you buy the handset, yes, but. Uh, you know, speaking on a uh, on a cell phone today is relatively free. With you know, new market entrants sort of trying to disrupt it completely and just saying, yeah, we'll charge a little bit for data, but you know, calling should be free. Uh, and you just when you reassess the market, you just people who have always been on the fence whether they can afford it or they cannot afford it, sitting in the villages, they're just buying it because now it's you know it comes off as free. Once you get that uh, mobile phone into their hand and you give them the access to internet, then they're they're you know they're ready to consume new and new content uh, you know download more apps to you know try and discover more uh, and they become easier to to bring into the system which has always been tough um, you know accessing these rural markets and these rural villages and these farmlands in india has never been easy um, and now uh, you know tech is trying to sort of play an overlay uh, and helping uh, access these, uh, you know, these villagers and these farmers and these um, uh, these people with, which have previously literally been, you know, uh, sort of uh, untapped from their potential. India and China are both growing at a rapid pace, and they have huge potential to shift our global food system for the better, to both better the global economy and to better sustainable practices. Food is fundamentally both global and local. This is something we'll continue to wrestle with throughout our time together. My question is, what would food systems look like if we focused on these growing influences? Perhaps the world food superpowers are shifting. We better keep pace. Today, Avinov has taught us that the past, present, and future of our food system are one, and we need to understand them all to make change. Moreover, 
we really do need to understand emerging markets to get a slice of that future pie. Like Upin have said, India and China are two standout examples, and knowledge of them is pretty much a requisite to participate in the global food scene. Next time, we'll learn even more about the Asian food arena and what other markets to keep a close watch on. See you then. Thank you.